to the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we explore the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality today. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings. And in this episode, it's episode 50, count them people, I'm in the UK talking to Dr. Lorianne Chalmin Pui, a well-being fellow at the Royal Horticultural Society. The RHS is the UK's leading gardening charity, if you don't know them. Lorianne completed her PhD at Sheffield University, where she conducted research on how domestic gardens can support physical and mental health via exposure to plants and wildlife. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll get an angle of where our conversation might go, connecting basically gardens with what we can do in terms of bringing the outside world in with biophilic design in buildings and interiors. Our discussion covers topics as diverse as well-being gardens, also known as healing gardens. We look at planet-friendly, low environmental impact gardening, environmental psychology as it relates to gardens, the emotional, physical and even social benefits of gardening and generally tending to plants, the benefits for our microbiota, that's our gut, of direct exposure to soil and earth, as well as a forthcoming research publication on the role a garden's colours and scents can play in positive uh, creating a positive impact on human health and well-being. This is a really interesting conversation. We go pretty deep, so enjoy it. Here is Dr. Lorianne Chaomin Pui. Lorianne, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'd really love to start with a, an initial question around just understanding the concept of environmental horticulture, which is your area of, of expertise. Could you give us a brief intro to that? Yeah, hi Matt, thanks a lot for having me. So I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Royal Horticultural Society and the University of Sheffield. And I'm physically based in Wisley in the Hilltop Home of Gardening Science and I'm in the environmental horticulture team. So we're primarily primarily concerned with improving our understanding of the interactions between soil, plants, water, and people. So this includes carbon, water, and nutrient cycles for both outdoors and indoor plants, and how they're impacted by people, of course, as well as the impacts of gardens and gardening on human health and well-being. All of these functions are interconnected, and that's why the word environment And of course, as I'm sure you'll know, it's all in the context of accelerated urbanization and land use change, uh, the biodiversity and climate crises. We're having more frequent extremes of temperatures and precipitation, which then has the knock-on effects on on climate, on the hydrological cycle, on biodiversity, on soil health. And our team, our, our environmental horticulture team, is composed of different specialists in these areas so we've got horticultural scientists the soil and climate change scientists uh, water scientists and fellows like me on on tree traits and ecosystem services for example and sustainability um, of course research technicians as well so our primary question in all of that is about the practical interventions that gardeners can apply to reduce their gardening footprint and then also improve environmental health and human well-being it strikes me that there's a really interesting parallel between the work you're doing, which is very much sort of academically driven around these outdoor spaces, or indeed sort of an indoor garden, and some of the principles that apply to, to 
my world in terms of creating greener and healthier buildings, where we're constantly balancing those twin demands around what's our impact on the environment and the potential positive or indeed negative impacts on on those people or the occupants of a building, those engaging with that space. So you mentioned climate change. I know it's not perhaps your specialism, but just the sort of very broad concept of sustainable gardening. How can gardening be anything but sustainable? What are the risks of, of gardening in terms of having a negative impact on the environment? Right. So I think in terms of a, a garden, sustainability is very much about environmental resilience, whether that's indoors or outdoors. And there's many ways in which we can actually have a negative uh, footprint, if you will. So if you're using peat-based compost, for example, that is depleting uh, peat bogs, which are a um, very important ecosystem and also um, a, a kind of carbon store. So it really depends on the practices. And there are so many different ways of garden gardening, sorry. And um, in term, when we think about surface area, we might think that, oh, domestic gardens, for example, are quite quite small and won't necessarily have a big impact. But about um, residential gardens comprise about 30% of Great Britain's total urban area. And uh, I think it was, there's about, the total area of UK domestic gardens is about 700,000 hectares, which is equivalent to more than 90,000 football pitches. So it's quite a large area. And when we think, for example, uh, so one positive thing that, uh, for example, a gardener can do is to plant a tree in their garden or community or school or wherever. And if every uh, gardener did plant that, we would be storing huge amounts of, of carbon. But one further thing to think about when, when we think about environmental horticulture, again, just to go back to that, is that we shouldn't necessarily just plant a certain tree because it sequesters more uh, carbon, because we would lose diversity if we planted the same tree. And the goals of a garden are different to, for example, the goals of a woodland or an agricultural patch. We're operating on different timescales. So in a timber woodland, you might want to plant a tree that sequesters more carbon in that shorter timescale before it gets cut down. But in a garden, you're probably not anticipating to cut down your tree within the next 10 years. So you might want to choose a tree that encourages that slow growth and sequesters carbon over time and storing it in the tree. Um, so there's, again, water practices. So whether you are irrigating your garden from mains water will be very different um, to if you are harvesting rainwater, creating permeable, as much permeable surface area and just different practices of how you water, how you feed your soil. Uh, there's definitely lots of scope that, uh, that you know any gardener can do in their home. And for us at the RHS, how we can um, influence the horticultural industry, the government, and how we can promote these different, more sustainable behaviours. And then, of course, we have our own gardens that, you know, we, we have our own operations that are going in here. So we're also trying to improve that. Great. Okay, so you've, you've brought up a couple of things there. I think you had one point that just occurred to me as I was listening to you. It's very much the same principles when we look at, say, putting in a green roof on a, on a building as part of a sustainable real estate plan. You know, we're trying to achieve many of the same 
uh, outputs that you've you've just described, and also deal with many of the same issues around, for example, irrigation and how rainwater collection can just effectively reduce overall water consumption, low irrigation systems and sherryscaping and things like that. You mentioned the RHS and its role. So for those who are perhaps not familiar with it or anyone listening from outside of the UK, the Royal Horticultural Society, what is the sort of overall aim? You're, you're obviously a specialist in well-being within the sort of overall health and planetary aspect of the environmental horticulture team. But the RHS itself, how does your team fit into the wider picture? What are the aims and objectives of your uh, teamwork over the course of a year? Right, so the Royal Horticultural Society is the UK's largest gardening charity. And so it's it's all about that horticultural knowledge. So we have an advisory service. Members can call in and ask questions. It's about inspiring people to, to you know, grow the best in their gardens and it's about um, promoting that horticultural industry as well and within our team it's very much the science so the evidence base for this for, for, for all of this the different initiatives we've also got a community outreach team for example who work in areas that may not have that safe and quality access to green spaces um one of the campaigns at the moment is a planet friendly uh a planet friendly gardening campaign so this is exactly the kinds of things that we're talking about and the aim of that is to help gardeners make the most of the physical and emotional benefits of gardening both for the, for the planet and for ourselves uh, what was the next part of your question? Sorry. You mentioned, well, you, you've just tied them both in there because you yeah. mentioned the emotional benefits of gardening and you also mentioned that the RHS has been working on some of its own gardens and doing some research for our conversation, I saw that I think it was four of these sort of health and well-being gardens going up. So let's dig into that a little bit. So the emotional benefits from your evidence-based perspective, like how do you quantify those? How do you provide evidence for them and what are the sort of broad buckets in terms of those emotional benefits we're presumably talking more around sort of mental health and well-being yes so there is a wealth of evidence on the mental but also the physical and the social health benefits of gardens mm. and gardening and this is it's a relatively new field in science it started picking up in the 80s uh, in the field of environmental psychology. So there is, and, and it's been growing ever since. And I think the COVID pandemic, one thing that it has alerted us other than, of course, you know, medical infections is the importance of green spaces. So I think it's really picked up. Most people now understand this. If you tell them about the mental health impacts of a garden, they're not going to look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> um, so I think that it's really been building, but in the 80s, one of the first studies was by an environmental psychologist called Roger Ulrich, and he had a sort of natural experiment where he was looking at patients recovering from gallbladder surgery in a hospital. One wing of the hospital had a view of trees, the other wing of the hospital, the windows had a view of a brick wall and other buildings. And he saw that the people who were having rooms 
with a view of the trees were recovering a couple of days faster and being discharged a couple of days earlier than um, the patients with the view of the brick wall. They were requiring less painkillers and they were less grumpy with the nurses. So that that was the real seminal study. Since then, there have been um, theories that have been proposed. So the likes of attention restoration theory by um, Stephen and Rachel Kaplan, stress reduction theory, which was developed by the same Roger Ulrich. And I started um, this research with my PhD in 2016. And really, in these past five, six years, it's it's really grown a lot, the, the wealth of evidence on mental, physical and social health. So, for example, the things we, can, we look at are symptoms of depression, anxiety. So that's been shown to be reduced uh, with gardening there. You can also look at pleasant and unpleasant emotions and the frequency of them. Um, you can look at mental health during the COVID lockdowns, for example. They've been quite... Uh, extreme scenarios but quite common scenarios now for many of us we can look at uh, general scales of well-being we can look at reported stress from so that's a self-reported psychological perspective but we can also look at physiological stress regulation so one of my studies for example looked at cortisol which is the body's main stress hormone and i found that the presence of plants and small front gardens did actually have an impact on the residents' cortisol patterns on, on the daily basis. So there's all sorts of things you can, there's also in terms of physical health, you can look at positive habits forming around diet and physical exercise. There've been studies showing that greener spaces are more likely to encourage active travel. So such as walking and bicycling, for example. Uh, gardening regularly also has been shown to reduce the risk of fracture um so like limb fractures and it's it's an adaptive form of physical exercise so as one grows older and perhaps um physical abilities change it is an activity that one can keep up with as opposed to maybe running that is not as adaptive um and we're learning more and more about the importance of exposure to microbial diversity so that's through soil and vegetation small microbiota um, very small organisms that are found on the skin and in our gut depending on what we eat and that will have a knock-on impact on our immune system so very much physical health and then finally social health which does often get forgotten is linked to things like um a sense of community, a sense of uh, belonging in, in one's area, making friends, feeling feeling connected with the world around us, and that will have knock-on impacts on, on our sense of um, self-esteem and creativity and, and having, you know, a kind of meaningful occupation to do. So there's, there's lots of things, um, really, and, and it's only growing. Of course, each of these studies are done in particular contexts with particular populations, so there's always more to do. The thank you for that. It's it's so interesting to see the crossover. You know that Ulrich study, which I think was in sort of the early eighties, and yeah. not that much seems to have been done since then. If I'm honest, like we all go back to that one study, 
of X number of patients in a hospital room. But even in the biophilic design space, it's, it's really the seminal piece that we all refer to. And then again, into the sort of the ATR and the SRT studies or concepts and theories. Biophilic design, what I'm seeing is that it has much more of a passive component. I think what's coming through from what you've just said is there's this active piece. And I think the key word there might be gardening rather than just exposure to plants and nature. So I often think about that in terms of um, forest bathing, where there is an element of engagement with nature. And I think with gardening, you're taking it a level further because you're then prompting exposure to the plants and therefore tapping into that sort of immune health microbiota. And then that social piece around community and engagement is immediately suggesting that perhaps say like a rooftop garden in a residential building, for example, or an office even would have far more or perhaps a wider application in terms of the physical benefits than just bumping up the number of air purifying plants in reception, for example. I think that's, it's a really striking piece of, of, of insight that perhaps biophilic design, yeah, maybe struggles to get to because it tends to be more about you know, introducing these elements into a space and then accepting that people just sort of passively uh, take in their surroundings and, and hope for the best. Gardening is much more about engaging with the garden and, and playing an active role in it. Clearly, that's the main difference, right? Right. So those two, the active and the passive engagement with the plants, you're absolutely right to, to draw those two as, as key differences. And of course, when you are gardening, you do have that added um, element of creativity, of being able to shape the environment that's around you, which um, psychologically is very linked to, to, to a feeling of control. And uh, when we look at how that might be impacting i mean often a lot of the ills that we have are often around uncertainty and lack of control so when someone can control something that will usually have quite a lot of benefits however i do disagree with you that the, the, mm. the, the more passive um exposure to plants doesn't have much impact and that it is kind of negligible because um there are more and more studies and including one of my own that even just that that passive exposure um, of having something nearby, so whether that's in an office or in a home or just outside of the home, that very frequent access um, does have an impact on on perceived stress, on perceived well-being, but also on this cortisol um, patterns, which I mentioned earlier. So I did a study that um, we 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 found a, sh- a whole street that garden they had front gardens um so that the physical space between the house and the street um or front yards if you're in in north america um that were previously paved over and so i did an intervention where i added plants to them and i studied the residents there over the course of a year and we found that before the interventions only intervention only 24 percent of the residents had this healthy diurnal cortisol pattern so a healthy um physiological stress regulation and then after we added the plants this increased to 53 percent suggesting that those individuals had better physiological um, stress regulation in their bodies which probably had a link to their mental health 
that was your four-year research project with the University of Sheffield, is that the one? Yes, exactly. And um, most of those people were not actively taking care. So they were two planters um, with some ornamental plants in them. They were self-watering containers. So there was a, a, a store of water um, underneath. So the participants barely even had to water them. It was in Salford where it rains a lot. Um, there were, for the vast majority of these people, there was no real active gardening engagement, but they still got those benefits. And you went with ornamental plants. Is there, so what were the specifics of that? We're looking for color. Do you think you obviously went for what, what you would imagine would create the most positive benefits, right? So is that about aesthetics? Is it about, um, yeah, painting the rainbow with the, with the flowers and the plants that are out there? Or what suggestions would you have in terms of trying right. to bring well, a little bit of that in? Sure. So interestingly, in that experiment, I didn't go for what I thought would have the most benefits. I wanted to isolate as many factors as possible. So when you're doing a science experiment, I didn't want to um, kind of conflate. I didn't want to put um, food, for example, because then it could be argued that the people were having a higher well-being because they were deriving other benefits, maybe having a cheaper food bill if they were getting some harvests from it. Um, I didn't want to go for anything too aromatic that might you know, lift up um, spirits in, in other ways. Um, it, I, I wanted to go for something not too exotic either that would um, provide a huge novelty factor, for example. I wanted to go with plants that are quite normal, so all found in um, regular garden centres um, and uh, quite familiar to people. So we had a mix of some bedding plants, some shrubs, some climbers. And the focus also was, of course, the climatic conditions of, of Salford, but something that was easy to know maintenance in that self-watering container. Um, but yeah, I mean, we did go for something. So we went for a kind of purple palette. We had asked for, um, we had asked the residents beforehand if they had anything they particularly didn't want. But then beyond that, they were happy to go with uh, anything. So there were violas, petunias, azaleas, clematis, then spring bulbs, so daffodils, uh, snowdrops and crocuses. Um, yeah, so, so quite, a, quite a familiar range of plants. Hmm. And I know you recently were involved in, well, played a sort of seminal role in the Health and Horticulture Conference of 2022, and your particular presentation there was around research and community. So were those two uh, researcher community, the city and the street? So were you there talking about that subject, and have you evolved your thinking since the end of the research project? So what were the sort of key messages you were communicating there to the audience? Yeah, so the RHS uh, Health and Horticulture Conference that was uh, on the 17th and 18th of March was very much part of my own research agenda where um, going beyond the actual logistics of the research itself, we really do want to play that role in bringing people together. So one of the things we've found is that the horticulture industry itself doesn't necessarily fully recognize these health and well-being impacts and the evidence base for it. And the health and social care sector, as, as wide as I can cast that net, um, doesn't necessarily have the skills and understandings to um, really have that win-win effect. And then, of course, a, 
around and associated to, to that you've got professionals in urban planning and in the built environment like yourself and and there is so much more so really what we wanted to do was bring people together and share that knowledge and my own talk as as part of that um was uh yeah so titled research and community and that was really to tie in the importance of people in the development and the application of that research so how can we achieve the integration between science and and to, i mean to call it outreach but knowledge dissemination and sharing and what i meant by the city and the street level was because it refers to the scale at which physical mental and social health often operate for individuals and for communities especially when we're thinking about uh, green cultivated spaces and domestic gardens so for the average individual, their well-being will be um, based on, um, you know, to a certain extent, their, their, their genetics and their lifestyle and things like that. Um, of course, their family, their friends. But then in, in terms of the spatial scale, it will be the city and the street, their home, their workplace, their school. Um, and it the, the aim of the conference altogether is to improve the recognition of gardens and gardening as that as a valuable public health asset and, and as a resource that can contribute to um, promoting better health for everyone, but also reducing that incidence of poor health for a generally well, seemingly well population, as well as for specific groups of people who might need more targeted um, interventions or um, more specific support to access safe green spaces. And from the outputs of the conference then, but also based on your own knowledge, I mean, when one thinks of, say, um, healing gardens in cancer care homes, for example, like in the Maggie's care centres where they create gardens that are intended to be spaces for cancer patients to, on some emotional level, to heal. Is there a, is there a playbook emerging in terms of the way to maximize a space to get the most out of it from a scientific perspective in terms of those mental well-being benefit mental and physical um, benefits are there key principles that are starting to become clear or is that still sort of work in progress from the design element i'd really recommend the uh, work and the book of claire cooper marcus who has looked at therapeutic garden design and um she has based a lot of her um, findings on post-occupancy evaluations. And it's it's really wonderful. She not only looks at the impacts on patients and their visitors, but also quite importantly on the staff who are working at the hospitals, who often do have um, um, quite tough frontline jobs. Again, we've seen that even more with the pandemic. Um, but actually there's not yet any scientific evidence base. So I have a PhD student who's just been starting out doing a scoping review for exactly what you're saying and looking mm. at the um, scientific literature. She's not really found much that has any kind of quantitative um, evaluation of this. So it's all quite qualitative, subject to the de designs, of course, in very different contexts. It can be... Um, relatively straightforward, I think, to spot a bad design. So something that just isn't used by people. You might have a garden space that um, 
you know, has metal benches in a hot climate. So of course, nobody's going to sit there. That's very easy to, to pinpoint. Um, but then in terms of really leveraging and optimizing what we do know, that scientific approach isn't there yet. And that is the case for these kind of hard features, let's say, but also for plants. So the role of, of scent, of color, of symmetry, for example. Um, and often in when you're looking at planting design handbooks, there isn't there's often an approach that's based on choosing the plants for, for their function, for the wider ecosystem. And then the last thing is kind of aesthetics and sensory properties. And of course, all three of them are very important. But that last point is generally just completely subjective and based on personal taste of, of either the garden designer or if they've done a sort of consultation focus group with the with the future and potential users of the place. But there's not... Um, yeah, there's not yet that scientific approach. So that's what we'd really like to get to. One of our goals at the RHS is to create an evidence-based blueprint for well-being gardens, whether that is in a hospital context or a, a residential context, a school context, a prison context. Um, there's a, a, a kind of model to go on that is based on scientific evidence. Which would then be so useful for... Uh, various other sectors, including my own. That's what's, I think, so uh, powerful about the work that you're doing is that it can then be uh, leveraged in other sectors too because it has a sort of spillover effect. You mentioned uh, colour and scent. I know you've been doing your own research on that. It might be too early to to speculate on, on the outcomes of it, but what's your initial hypothesis in terms of the role of colour and scent on, on stress and well-being from a garden context? Yeah, so I've started doing some indoor experiments and we'll be doing outdoor ones as well to kind of have a, a multi-pronged approach to understanding this. Um, essentially, what we've got um, outdoor, for example, in, in the Wisley, RHS Wisley Garden in Surrey, we've got a well-being garden, which has been designed um, by Matt Keatley as, as a living laboratory. So it's got these different features. There is an area of running water, for example. There is an area of still water. There's an area of um, plants and flowers that are deeper reds and oranges and then an area that has um, more whites pale pinks pale yellows so the well-being garden there is as i said not based on any um, scientific conclusions but it's based on scientific hypotheses um, and then it gives us the space to test them out so one of the hypotheses for example is the impact of color on our and our emotional responses to different colors so in in psychology and marketing we know for example that the color red um, can evoke certain um, different emotional responses so be that power or anger or love and often these kinds of things will be mediated of course by uh, cultural and and individual idiosyncratic um, experiences but there is no um, research so far on whether those color um, stimuli whether they have the same emotional responses when they're in a natural setting in a garden in a on a plant and uh, so one of the hypotheses following that psychological theory is that the reds and the, the warmer colors might be more arousing when we when in in terms of arousing emotions so they're the more active emotions 
uh, like excitement and invigoration and, and anger as well is, is excited is an arousing emotion and then when we look at the cooler colors so the the whites the pastels the blues um whether they would be more calming and of course when i think often when we think of a well-being garden uh, or a therapeutic garden or a healing garden or whatever you want to call it I think most people automatically think of relaxation and lower stress, but actually that's not necessarily what we need as humans. We don't want to just be relaxed all the time. Um, and gardens can be a place for us to um, experience our full range of human emotions. So sometimes we want to be really stimulated. And so that's part of the, the design and whether that's through color that I've been talking about or scents. So we know that scents like rosemary, for example, there've been tests on rosemary essential oil, um, that that has increased alertness and cognitive um, attention. So, you know, if you do a little kind of little cognitive tests people have scored higher when they've had some rosemary essential oil next to them versus without um so so there are so many ways in which the planting palettes of a garden can influence and if you've got a space that can be for example divided into two areas very crudely you can have one that is less arousing one one that is more arousing and depending on how you as an individual are feeling that day you can go and surround yourself in an environment that suits what you need, what you want, how you're feeling, and that will help you regulate your emotions in a in a healthy way rather than suppressing anything. Well, if you can get to it, that type of insight would help anyone working in the biophilic design field to say, create, know how to adapt the interiors in a space, for example, in an office environment where perhaps it is more about cognitive performance and uh, alertness and concentration, productivity, versus, say, a quiet room space within a large office, which is more about uh, the yin to that yang, so then about Absolutely. calming and restorative. Because I think, it, yeah, we, we just don't have the scientific uh, basis for that. I think we're often doing it more on instinct. And I, I was going to close, if I may, by uh, a question on that, rather perhaps less instinct, more on an angle around evolutionary psychology. I just wondered from your perspective, which is clearly science-based, is there any room for an evolutionary psychology approach that says, well, perhaps some of what we're dealing with here is, is about, as much as anything, our genes, our history, our evolution on the planet in tune and connected with nature is there space for that or are you looking for hard facts only in the present day um really interesting question so i think that at the end of the day we are all the same species with with animals um you know we we have our habitat our habitat um is increasingly for for most people in the world urban um and i don't personally um kind of understand uh, the, the, the very big dichotomy between uh, urban man-made environments and nature, when especially these are often contrasted. Um, but I think that what's important and what we as a, as a kind of modern day human need is, is the balance and the integration of those two things. I think that often there can be um, 
uh, a very easy over attribution to um, these evolutionary arguments that we are much more today, we are much more mediated by our cultural experiences, whether that is um, nationality or race or gender or just, just past experiences that we've had as individuals. And I think that for most people, that will probably be the more important um, when we think about emotional reactions that often will kind of override any evolutionary um, aspects. But I think that we certainly at, at the basic level, yes, we are we are drawn to nature. But the question is which kind of nature and and the you know, a, a tree is something that is very understandably nature. Um, a virus or pathogen less so. So I, I think, um, you know, sometimes we've got to, we've got to really understand what we're talking about. And sometimes it can be overgeneralized. So um, yeah, I mean, I think there is yeah. definitely an importance for that, for that science of understanding what it is and what reactions are we finding. And the the argument isn't, it doesn't always just go back to, you know, where did we evolve? I think that's critical. It's, it's too much of a, of a, an umbrella concept to just say, well, nature dominates nurture. So it's not about what we've learned, but it's about what we were born with in our DNA. And therefore biophilia is, is already proven and we don't need to, to back it up. I think it's, we need, we need both. We need an understanding of, of the, science that's proving that it's still present today and we are in fact reacting as perhaps an evolutionary approach might suggest we need to yeah definitely it. and i think we also need to understand um our impact on nature so um things like sustainable practices environmental pro-environmental behavior things like that um i mean they they may sound quite um small in the grand scheme of things when you look at you know the huge tipping points of climate change and things like that but ultimately that integration however much nature there is in your environment you're still depending on the water you're still depending on the air you're still depending on on climate stability and we do need to understand um our impacts on that and how it all ties in and i think that's how just to go full circle back to the the kind of environmental horticulture it's not it's not just our well-being um, versus a planetary, natural, um, you know, very green planet everywhere. It's really about everything coming together and everything is interlinked and, and equally important. I think we should close on that. That's a big thought to, to wrap things up with. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll leave a note. Um, we'll leave a mention of the Wellbeing Garden book by your colleague at the RHS, Professor Griffiths, in the show notes. In terms of people connecting, showing support for the RHS, how can they follow along with the work that you're doing there? Well, we've got a oh, I can't remember the URL. You might have to link it, but we'll we've got some. It. We've got plenty of um, uh, pages on our website that has uh, links to all of this well-being research. People, of course, can contact me directly if there is a specific question or access to a specific paper or study. Um, in terms of more generally gardening inspiration for, for example, small spaces, things like that, the rest of the RHS website also has um, plenty of horticultural um, uh, knowledge that is freely available. You don't have to be in the UK, but of course it is probably more biased towards uh, UK 
plants. And um, in terms of sustainable gardening practices, again, there's a wealth of tips and advice um, on the RHS website. Wonderful. We'll add all the links in the show notes. Thanks again for your time. Thank you.